Hello and welcome to this episode of Me Head is Wrecked with Tony Kelly. I'm your host, of course, Tony Kelly, and I hope I find you well on this morning, this evening, this afternoon, this day, whenever you happen to be listening. I hope you're well, and as always, I hope your head is not wrecked. And if it is, hopefully there's something we can do about that and at least distract you for as long as this podcast lasts. Um, Yeah, so it's been a while, I suppose. Um, Usually... Uh, In normal times, before all this craziness happened, this podcast used to drop every second Sunday morning and I'd have a a certain guest on and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, since it all, I think I've only done one actually in the whole lockdown, which was the last episode with OTT wrestling owner Joe Cabray. And that's that's pretty purposeful, to be honest with you. They're, They're very sporadic now, which is a word I learned from the movie Clueless back in the day. (laughs) But uh, yeah, they're they're pretty sporadic now, and that is pretty purposeful as well. Uh, I think we're all trying to get through this lockdown and this whole time period. This whole it's pretty historic, I think. When we when hopefully when we can look back on all this, but we're all doing what we can to get through it. All handling it our own way. I'm I'm handling it my own way, and um, I hope uh, you know as sporadic as these episodes are, as I put them out, I hope they're finding you well. I hope they're distracting you. I hope. You know, there's something maybe in it for people uh, that will help us and help you get through whatever we're all going through at the moment because it is crazy times. Uh, I don't like to dwell too much on that because I think there's, there is a lot, anywhere you turn you're reading about uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus, whatever's going on. Uh, there's obviously a lot of a lot of crazy stuff going on in, in, in the United States of America right now as well. Um, I don't think... You know, I'm I'm not exactly qualified to, to really be commenting about that. Uh, I'm very sad about what's going on over there. Um, but, you know, uh, I call the United States of America home for a long time. Uh, but I think it's very important that um, we educate ourselves. Black Lives Matter, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's, a, there's lots of information and ways you can support the cause and stuff out there whether it's donating to the bail fund or whatever, or just spreading the message. Um, so look, if you're listening in the United States, whether you be friends, followers, or strangers, whatever, just be safe over there, be well, and hopefully change will come soon. Now, I just felt the need to just address a little bit of that there. Um, today's guest, I think it's it's uh, time to talk about now. Today's guest is... Journalist, sports writer, Liverpool fan, and my friend, Tony Evans. Um, And we're going to talk about the topic of Hillsborough, and more specifically the Hillsborough disaster. For those of you not aware to to what that's about, who aren't soccer fans, football fans, Liverpool fans, whatever. The Hillsborough disaster happened on the 15th of April 1989, where 96 Liverpool fans were killed at a crush at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield in England. Uh, at the time, the Liverpool supporters were blamed for that and uh, the Liverpool fans, the people of Merseyside, the people of Liverpool in general, not just Liverpool fans, have pushed for justice, for truth, uh, that it was a cover-up, that the people weren't to blame, the fans weren't to blame, they blamed drunk fans, they blamed ticketless fans, but that's not the case Um 
there was a chief inspector or some higher up policeman. I'm not too savvy to the ranks of the the British police, but a gentleman, and I use that term loosely, by the name of David Duckenfield, was in charge of the game. He wasn't versed in handling football games, let alone important games like FA Cup semi-finals. He didn't handle it well, and he blamed the fans. Um, and it it all really spun from there. We touch on a lot of this with Tony as well. There's a lot of legal implications to this uh, since since the findings in 2012 that in fact it wasn't the fans who caused that that it was gross negligence on the part of the police um we now know the truth um but if you could imagine first of all being there on the day and seeing that you know because i i did my research for this podcast was from an espn 30 for 30 documentary just simply called hillsborough and a BBC documentary about Hillsborough as well, which Tony was was featured on both. And the, the families of the survivors are just survivors, or sorry, the families of the victims, I should say. And some of the survivors are interviewed. And it's so harrowing. Um, I'll never forget the first time I saw the, the ESPN one. And um, I had to pause it um, maybe three or four times. I got so emotional watching it with both um, sorrow, sadness and anger. And it, it happened to me again. Uh, on Monday afternoon, I believe it was, whenever I, I interviewed Tony this week, I um, I watched the BBC one and I couldn't get through it. And you hear me say that to Tony in the interview as well. I just wasn't able. Um, maybe it's everything that's going on in the world right now as well as that. But it's always been quite an emotional thing. If you don't know me, um, I am a, I'm a massive Liverpool fan myself. I'm a season ticket holder at Anfield. I've been going to Liverpool since I was five or six years old with my dad, whose who's seat is next to me in Anfield. Um you know, I'm a, I'm a big football fan in general. Myself and my dad are both season ticket holders at um, Waterford FC. Well, actually, my my dad is a season ticket holder. I'm just a regular goer um, at our local club, Waterford FC, as well. Um, Friday nights are quite difficult for me with the League of Ireland because I'm always doing something. But when I get there, I, when I can get there, I can get there. But my point being that, um, you know, I come from a football house, I suppose. And, um, you know... Um, Liverpool is, is very close to me Liverpool Football Club obviously but I think football fan or not just once you're a human being this is a, this is a story of survival um, a story of injustice and I think we can all um, relate to that in some way but Tony's a great man a great writer um, he's written a load of books uh, some great articles that aren't football articles he's very interested in the troubles in in, in the north of Ireland has written some stuff about that. He's just a really interesting guy to talk to. A very funny, very witty guy. Really nice guy. But, um, you know, Hillsborough, what people don't talk about is, yeah, okay, okay, 96 people were lost on the day, but how many people were lost to suicide after that survivor's guilt, post-traumatic stress disorder? Tony gets into his own experience with that having been there on the day and comes to a realisation that maybe he's been suffering from PTSD. And, and I, look, I won't spoil the interview because it's it's there to listen to. And I could probably talk all day myself about this, but I won't. As always, this podcast is not about me. It's about the guests. It's about yourself. It's about, well, it's, it's about me learning just as much as about you learning. And um, really, really proud of this one, to be honest. And uh, not that I'm not proud of all of the interviews I've done, but I'm really, really proud of this one. It's something a little bit different. So without any further ado from me, please enjoy my chat with the great Tony Evans. All right, I'm here with Tony Evans. Tony, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for being here with me. Good to see you. Good to chat to you. How are you keeping over there? 
Oh, can't complain in the circumstances. You know, it's a difficult time for everyone and uh, probably less difficult for me than most so uh, because my work is mainly done from home on the phone. And uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, I'm just, I hope everyone else and who's been listening to this has had a, you know, well, has had as, as, as good a time as you can possibly have at the yeah, moment. Yeah, exactly. Well, from one Tony to another Tony, uh, it's very good to have you on the podcast. You're in London right now, is that right? I'm in London. I've been in London now for a long time. Um, been in London since 1997, uh, which is, well, I mean, I'm from that age and generation where you knew that when you're old enough to wear, you had to leave Liverpool. Mm. I mean, those who those who didn't, you know, well, fair play to them and have been successful. But there were no jobs. There was very little there. So you knew you, you had to do it. And, I mean, again, in, in many ways, it's, it goes back to the, you know, sort of the, the whole Irish heritage and the Irish background. It's the same sort of thing as in Ireland. You knew you had to leave. And so I went and lived in the States for the best part of seven years and we were always sort of always scouts and Irish communities were mixing together and living together and was that so I kind of from early on I realized that I probably wouldn't be living in Liverpool most of my adult life and a lot of us had to had to do that because of Thatcherism yeah, that's there's there's an inherent marriage I think between the Irish and the Scousers, um, probably because of roots. Because obviously Liverpool being a shipping town, a lot of Irish would have docked there and stayed there and set up families there. So there's definitely a kinship between the city of Liverpool and the country of Ireland, isn't there? Oh, the the, the whole essence of Scouts is rooted in Irishness. Mm. Anyone who thinks anything else has got it all wrong and they don't understand the dynamics of it. I did a piece for the Anfield Rap uh, about the the history and the links between the um, the, the the two the, the, the two countries. And when the and the thing is, the, the 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 famine completely changed the nature of Liverpool. The famine changed Liverpool from an Irish from an English city into an Irish city virtually overnight. And where I come from, which is the north side, the north end, which is the Scotland Road area, mm-hmm. you know that was. New slums just come up everywhere, and it became one of the poorest parts of, you know, of the world, frankly. And and that's that's where Scouse come from. The word Scouse first appeared after the First World War, and it was it was obviously everyone knows it was a stew, yeah, yeah. but like it was served in carts to the poorest people in the Scotland Road area, and it was originally used as a term, a scornful term, Scouse, Scouser. You know, you have to use the the, the the, the, you know, the food um, cart, you know, you have to get free food. And then somewhere in the, um, in the, the late 20s, I suspect, and early 30s, it, it, it jumped and became a, a, a point of pride. And it wasn't used until in the Oxford English Dictionary in 1947. So it's, it's a fairly late thing. But up until then, up until 1919 and the 20s, when they, they started taking scouse as a term, the people, in Scotland Road area, the people that I, I'm d- descended from, they would have referred to themselves as Irish. Right. If you would have asked them to self-describe, they would have said, I'm Irish. And then then they became Scouse. And of course, you know, where I come from, the Scotland Exchange electrical area, electoral area um, had an Irish National Assembly until 1929. Wow. 
Wow. Well, like it's 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 evident when you're in the city and when there's there's I've been going to Liverpool since I'm five years of age with my dad, obviously to the game all the time. And there's just something like obviously for me, it feels like a home away from home because I've spent so much time there. But when you're out with your mates, like if you go over with your mates or whatever, there's always just a welcome thing there that's sometimes if you and it's not always but sometimes if you're Irish you're in London or you're it could even be in Manchester or somewhere like that there's there's always the kind of underbelly there that you might be called a paddy bastard at any point by some drunkard and that might kick off but that's never the case in Liverpool it's always very like a kinship as I said yeah and and there were good sides and bad sides about it because you know the lodge still march in liverpool you know it's a, when i was growing up in fact even in the 80s so it was in my 20s you know the, the the lodge presence was was pretty big and on july the 12th the bianchi in town you know it's like a, people talk about football violence but you know the, the 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 violence in town you know over religion on the 12th to be mad and thankfully that's died off a little bit so but we we've got we got all the good sides of Irishness, you know, and then um, the, uh, the the sort of the ability to communicate, the welcoming attitudes, mm-hmm. the, um, the I'd wit. like to say the, the fact that we're poets, the poets, yeah, um, yeah. the music, yeah, yeah exactly. But we, we also got the bad sides. We got the you know, as I say, we got the we got the the orangeman, the orange lodge, yeah. um, and and we got you know we got we got the division as well. Thankfully, the football clubs transcended that division and you know and, and it's been one of the big unifiers in the city so that's well, where it's been well that's something i'd actually like to talk about for a second is because it's it's often said by by irish people i've never heard it said when while i was in liverpool but it's certainly a stick that um some non-liverpool fans like to beat is that everton are the catholic club and liverpool they're the protestant club is there any truth to that that, that you know of or where does it come from not a shred of it. What happened is when Everton were formed out of St. Domingo's Church. Well, Liverpool, the club was formed out of St. Domingo's Church and the club became Everton. Yeah. And then they split off. Um, I think most a lot of people know the story about, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, that the Liverpool's, the, the man who owned Anfields was a brewer and wanted to sell his beer and, uh, and the Everton directors were more, you know, were, more anti, more temperance, and uh, and they didn't want to do that, and so they split up. That now, of course, Liverpool's founder was in the Orange Order, but so were many other members of the board who went with Everton. And over the next few years, in the early years of the club, uh, both clubs had Irish nationalists councillors on the the boards. They had uh, Orange Order members. They were they were split. They were mixed in, and the, the the clubs never never really developed a religious identity. So I mean, the people are desperate to to ascribe you know sort of Liverpool being a Liverpool link with Rangers and Everton with Celtic. None of it's true. Um, it, it was too complex. In fact, one of the problems I think in the early years of the club is that the mass of people who the working class the working class people who call themselves Irish were not really that interested in football in the early years because they had bigger issues to deal with, like crushing poverty, you know, um, the the, the politics, the fact that, you know, um, the the battle for Irish independence, which more than preoccupied them. 
um, in, in Liverpool. And so they, they were less interested in football. The interest in football from the working classes came in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and, and, uh, when I was researching a book on it, and they did a, um, a classic thing that you still see in papers now, local papers. They took pictures of the crowd, circled people, and give them a pound. And you had to write in and get your name and address. And they published the name and addresses. And one of them in, the, uh, in about 1909, if I remember right, they did it. And all the people are from the, you know, the, the clerks, you know, the, the, the minor professionals, you know, that sort of thing, come from the middle classes. And they come from areas which were middle class. And they did it again in 1932, where this time, by the pictures of the crowd, you can see the crowds are much more ragged. And the people who won were from working class backgrounds and areas and there were things like dockers and porters and things like that the nature of the crowd changed and in Liverpool the, the, the football didn't become the people's game until much later than everywhere else perversely right and when do you think that was maybe with Shankly's influence and the, the socialist aspect of the club or what do you think I think by then, you know, sort of, it was the the working class game of the city, and the and and they had attached to the passion. But Shankly made the the, the huge difference. Shankly come in and understood implicitly the mindset of Scousers. He understood what what they believed in, what they cherished, and you know, and he. He, he spoke to it when he talked about socialism. It was just you know people understood it. I mean, you got also got to remember live. We got to be fair to Manchester here. Manchester was a radical city in terms of politics long before Liverpool. Liverpool, at the turn of the uh, the twentieth century, was still known as Tory town, and didn't become a, a left wing bastion until really until the late sixties and seventies. But Shankly could see what the majority of the people where like they could see that the majority of the people were like him, and and he knew that. That well, he didn't do it deliberately, but he knew what his appeal was to them, and it was, you know, as he said, it's everyone working together and everyone having a share of the results, and and that that what that did is gave Liverpool in particular a greater link with the city as its identity was changing, and Liverpool Football Club became the flag bearers for a city, and at a time when socially, politically, and economically we were under pressure, Liverpool were the best team in the world and you know what you, 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 you no matter where you went and people looked down on you and that that's the sneering towards scousers is rooted in anti-irishness again i'll say yeah but when people went and looked down on you you could you knew that we had the best team in the world and when we sang they all laugh at us they all mock us they all say our days are numbered but i was born to be scouts you knew we were on top yeah, it's just, so, I don't know, because I, I obviously consider myself so very Irish and I'm, you know, I'm so very proud to be Irish. But since day one of me going to Liverpool games with my dad, I think Sunus's first game as manager, I think it was against Norwich, if I'm not wrong. That was my first game as a fan. I was five or six years of age. But there was just something straight away that made me feel, yeah, I'm part of this. I get what this is about. You know what I mean? But before we, I suppose, before we even go into all that kind of stuff, tell us a bit about yourself, Tony. You're obviously from the Scotland Road area, Liverpool, as you said. But like, how did you? When did you know you were going to be writing and, and writing about football? Well, I, I kind of didn't. Um, I, I, I had a feeling when I was young that I'd be a writer, but I had no idea how I could achieve this. And I, you know, sort of, you grow up in a world where. The, the, the worst thing about it is the uh, limited expectations and limited aspiration. People don't think you, you're going to 
go anywhere, you know, it's one of them. And people, I, you know, it's like I, I went to Cardinal Godfrey, which was a, um, a technical high school, which the idea was to turn out people who, who could do apprenticeships. That was, you know, the, the limit of your horizons. Get an apprenticeship, get a trade, son. You'll do all right. So I lived in that sort of world. And, you know, me dad, my dad was a bouncer on, on the doors of nightclubs. And um, so we, we weren't exactly wealthy. Um, and he died when I was 15. So, you know, so my mother was bringing up four children in this environment. So, you know, it, was, it wasn't exactly Angela's ashes, but it was, you know, it, you know, it wasn't privileged, to say the least. And then I, 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 I did, because um, I had no idea about work at today levels and did, you know, sort of English, um, history, economics all the usual stuff and and did well enough to get to university and i went to university but again i was unfocused and had no idea about you know what i wanted to do and i had no experience in the middle class world and i didn't do very well at the university i was a prick i got sent down right. I'd, I'd rather go the match you know and that, that's that's what i did i went the match and you know and and it's one of those things where how do you gain status in working class communities? Well, you can be a hard man, you can be funny. You know, one of the ways around us was, you know, going the away games and going the match. People were interested in it. They like, you know, they, they wanted to know what it was like. You know, they wanted to know whether they'd be in the era of hooliganism, whether was whether there was any trouble, yeah. what the team were like. Because you couldn't watch footballers. You know, you didn't watch them on telly. You know, you, you, the only way to see it was going you only have a highlights package and live the cup final on the odd international. And so, so, you know, going the match gave you a little bit of status and, and you know, and I sort of, and I loved that when, you know, and also gave you adventures. It was cheap. You could go across the country, go to places you wouldn't go to otherwise. Yeah. And it was brilliant. So that, that's how I come into it. And, and then funnily enough, going through the match led me to join a band. They, um, the, the guy who was in part, well, I wouldn't say he was responsible, but kind of helped me to get kicked out of university. Was a, 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 he'd been to Anfield Comp, and but he, he was a trumpet player, mm-hmm. and um, he, uh, he, he, so I said to him, I said, "Oh, you know, lends your trumpet, then you know, I've got nothing to do." I initially got suspended before they kicked me out, so for a year, I, I learned to play the trumpet. So I was on Tuna Day, Book One. I was at the I was in the scoreboard end at Old Trafford, and um, so Peter Hooten was there, and he he knew this, this trumpet player because they they practiced in a, a place that his dad had. And he went up to him and said, like, you know, um, you 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 know, could, you come and play with us, you know, see what you like with the band. So he said, points to me, he goes, I'll bring him with me. We're a brass section. So I'm like, I'm still on Tuna Day, Book One, and I'm like, oh. So anyway, we turned up to the practice the next day. It all went well. And he said, I'll come and play live with us. So we went and played live in a place called the Masonic. And he said, like, six people were there. He said, that that sounds. Um, he said, like, uh, well, you know, we'll come, you know, join the band. So we said, all right, fine. And then four weeks later, we were on stage supporting the Style Council at the, at the Empire. <laughs> and, um, and again, I was still on Tunisay Book One. I couldn't play, but it did look good. And um, but that kind of got me into a more creative world, you know, where you began to think, well, you can do things creatively. I knew I was never going to be a musician because I didn't have the aptitude. But well, 
having said that, Liverpool always has a creative outlook. Everyone's a, everyone thinks they're an artist, even if they don't do anything. Again, you see the same thing in Ireland. You know, yeah. the, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of failed drunken poets, as long as the as well as the the famous successful drunken poets. Exactly. Um, and and so, but you know, there's there's a great vitality in terms of um, of culture, and you know, sort of so. So at that point, I started thinking in wider terms about what I could do with my life and if there was any opportunities there. And then, uh, sort of, but it took it took really a, a tragedy to set me on the right route. A tragedy to to set you off to being a writer rather than a musician. Well, yeah, I mean, after after Hillsborough, um, I went to I kind of ran away, yeah. and. Um, I went to the States and uh, mates were living over there and I was working on a building in LA and I was, you know, this was fine. And I, I was like, you know, having a good time. And uh, but I thought to myself, I'm, I'm like, I'm 29 now and I'm fit and I'm strong, but I don't want to be doing this when I'm 50. Yeah. So what, what, what can I do? I thought, well, I'm right. Okay. On the basis that if you could communicate, if you could be articulate in conversation, that writing would be easy. And in a sense, I was right. <laughs> in a sense, I was right. And in a sense, I got completely wrong and it showed out afterwards. So I started applying for jobs um, at newspapers as a, as a writer. And it's, you know, it sounds really stupid thing to do. But I got an interview and was interviewed by a very nice woman who loved me accents. And I think... That was she gave me a writing test, and I think primarily she gave me the job because of my accent. Well, and then listen, I was off and running. Yeah, if I could, if the amount of stories I have from living in America and getting away with things or getting things I shouldn't have gotten because of my accent, I think we could probably trade stories about that all night. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Look, we're, we're we're here now, I suppose. And you said that you know you've said the word about where we're here. We're we're here to talk about Hillsborough primarily, I suppose. So mm. I didn't realize you weren't writing at all before Hillsborough. No, not really. I'd done a few bits for, you know, sort of uh, local sort of papers and fanzines, but nothing, nothing serious, you know. Yeah. I'd, I'd, and I'd, 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 I'd sort of, I'd, I'd sat down and written longhand a formative nov- novel about football fans. I suppose you'd say now it was about football hooliganism, but it wasn't really, but it was about fans who are in yeah. the hooligan environment yeah. so I'd, I'd done that but I'd, I'd, I'd had no paying work you know yeah. it's I mean well at the time in Hillsborough I was working in an estate agent's so it kind of tells you I'd, I'd reached that point uh, I'd left the band and you'd reach that point where you're like well probably best just get on with making money in the normal world yeah and then then you you go to something that you think you're going to enjoy one weekend, you think it's going to be normal, and it turns out that a lot of people end up dead. And when I come away from that, I thought, yeah, you know, I had to wear suits every day for this job, and I thought, well, I don't want to, don't want to do it, don't want to wear suits, yeah. so give me suits away and packed in the job. And and then I was at a loose end, so I thought, go. Go to the states, as I say, running away. Well, look, we, yeah. Well, look, we 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 get to that, I suppose. But, um, how old were you when Hillsborough when when this all went down? In your twenties? I was twenty-eight. Yeah. Hang on. 
Yeah, 28. 28. So it's 1989, 15th of April, 1989, for anyone who doesn't know who's listening, because I'm sure there's, you know, there's lots of non-football fans who, uh, who listen to the podcast, you know. Um, so I think I, said, I, this, I did a bit of research for this from the BBC documentary that they put out. I watched a bit of this earlier on. I actually, I couldn't get through the full thing, I'll be honest with you, because it was too emotional. Um, but you, I think you had mentioned you were at the cup for, or semi, semi-final the year before with your mate. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, we 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 went. I mean, you know, you say glibly everywhere. D- uh, didn't go everywhere, but almost everywhere. You know, when when you could afford it, where you could get to. We we went. So yeah, we've been the year before, and it was it was you know relatively normal, good day out. You know, it's um, and we expected you know similar. You know, we I always remember we um we walked up to get the. We, to go to mate's house, we were going by car, and we, we walked up to get the bus. He lived by the grounds, get the bus on Scotland Road. I always remember my brother saying to me, he said, oh, he said, what a lovely day. He said, like, look at this. I said, well, you know, it won't be lovely if we get beat. Yeah. And he went, no. He said, it's such a lovely day, nothing could go wrong. And you're like, and it, it, it looked like that, you know, and that's how yeah. we felt about it. We were going through a joyous occasion. Yeah, but that's it. You, there's a quote. I have it written down for later, but now that you've said that, you're in the BBC documentary and you say something like, you know, we were in red, they were in all white, the pitch was as green as you've ever seen. And you just thought, yeah, this is what football's all about. That stood out to me from yeah. the documentary this morning. You, you said that. Yeah, yeah. As I, come up the, as I come up the stairs and into the ground, the teams were coming out as I come, as, as I went in and I was like, wow, this is, this is what, this, this sums up, this is the essence yeah. of what the game's about. And then I looked to me right mm. and then saw the, 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 the pens, the central pens. Yeah, and I thought, oh, yeah. Christ. Well, we, we get there, we, we, we'll build up to that. But one, one thing that st- stands out to me always when people talk about this, and it's never spoken about, is the, I think it was the 1981 semi-final was there I think it was Spurs and Wolves is that am I right in saying that yeah. I think yeah. yeah and there was an issue at that game at Hillsborough where people spilled out onto the pitch from a, 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 an almost crush yeah yeah it was the same same issue overcrowding in the central pens and um, you know the, the ground was dangerous mm. the, the ground was dangerous you know we didn't have a safety certificate when we played there and Tottenham had a lucky escape, and that's interesting. You talk to Tottenham fans of sort of generally were older than me and or my age and older, and who, who were there that day, and and they've always been like completely on our side in the hills yeah. because they they knew how near it was to being them. Yeah. Um, you know, there should never have been another semi final played at that ground again. No, absolutely not. And I I had forgotten that fact until I rewatched the documentary this morning, and like. It just begs it beggars belief then as to why there's been so much doubt and cast over this whole thing when it almost happened before anyway, you know? Uh, well, there's a number of reasons, yes. I think. Um, I think the first one is, um, is that there's, there's a traditional... I think if it would have happened to any other club in the country and, and any other team in the country... With, with the exception of Everton, I think because it happened to Scousers, it made it easy to demonise, demonise us. We were demonised anyway, but you know, like we, we were part of the enemy within already in Thatcherite Britain. But yeah. it goes way back, way back to that. You know, it's it goes way back. For example, if you look at the in the eighteen eighties, the, the street gangs that are high rip 
in Liverpool. They were like, they, they go back and you read the papers and it's like, you know, the, they were always more hysterical about events in Liverpool. The Peaky Blinders in Birmingham and the Scuttlers in Salford were as bad, you know, but didn't get the press coverage. So the, the, because of the anti-Irishness, there was always a, 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 a suggestion that the people of Liverpool were wilder, more dangerous. So that was, that's deep inside the English psyche. Yeah. So there's that. Secondly, Heisel. Heisel really created a situation where it allowed people to think it was poetic justice, whereas that happened to us at, at Hillsborough, and also made them think, well, it's happened to them at Heisel, it's happened to them at Hillsborough, so there's a pattern emerging here. They didn't stop to think that could have happened to anyone, it nearly happened to Tottenham. They just put, put two and two together, and I think they, they, they those... Well, the third component was the the demonisation of football fans, which had gone over for 20 years, yeah. where, again, it made it easy for the media, to, for Kelvin McKenzie, to, to call us scum and the truth. And people, people accepted that football fans would behave in a way that rational people wouldn't, when, in fact, the vast majority of stuff that was written about football hooliganism or, or, or broadcast about it was a complete not a lie. So, but these these things all coalesced together at Hillsborough. So it made pe- it made it easy for people to believe that you know that we we were a particularly violent and dangerous group of people, and that we did cause these things regularly. Yeah, it just it, it just I don't know like why it's not spoken about more that this almost happened once already because surely then that that now lends a complete sympathy to the fans but look we've there's no real answer to that I don't think um was there any discussion like on the day any fear on the day that this happened in 1981 this ground might not be up to par does that ever come into play when you're traveling to the ground that day no no because we I mean by then I've forgotten about 1981 because no one had been killed and because, so, you know, gruesome things had happened. You know, 1985 in particular was a terrible year for, for you know, football fans. Sure. And, um, you know, culminating with highs, which obviously, you know, haven't been there and, you know, being, you know, part of this horrible event. So that, that was mostly sort of clouded our minds. And, and the, the stadium... The stadium played a big part in what happened in, in uh, Heisel, yeah. and it was such a mess. We didn't, we really didn't think that in in in, in Britain, in the UK, in, in in English league stadiums, that you could reach that level of decay, and that there would be. I mean, we'd seen bad stadiums, you know, gods all over the country. You know, that it was a nightmare. But we we didn't think there'd be anything like Heisel. We thought, we and we didn't think there'd be a catastrophic failure of policing. Like there was at Heisel, because we thought the British police, all right, we mightn't like them, but they're relatively well organised. So no, it never even entered our minds, you know. I mean, we did go and go in there as usual. I said to me brother, when you go in the ground, because I knew he'd go in the ground earlier than me. I'd stay in the pub until as late as I can. So he'd go, he's 10 years younger, he'd go earlier. And I said to him, remember, I said, when you go through those gates, don't go down the tunnel go round the side. And he says, you're telling me this every bloody time we go to Sheffield Wednesday, you know, every time we come to Hillsborough. And I'm like, yeah. So there was that sense. So why, you did, know, you t- why but, did you say that though, Tony? Why, why did you feel the need to say that to him? 
because we knew that always those central pens were always packed, right. jam-packed tight, worse than the cop. And there was always loads of space down on the sides. So mm. we knew that because we, we did it every year. And, but we, I mean, well, it, it was unimaginable that it, we, could, we, we couldn't imagine, we, we could not believe or conceive yeah. that there was no mechanism for getting out when it got too packed. It was just, so, yeah. I mean, we, we, there was no sense of danger. No, no, it was probably, as, as, as in terms of 80s football, semi-finals like that, and especially, you know, against Forrest at, at Hillsborough, there was as little sense of menace as you could possibly have going to a football game. Yeah, well, you'd never, like, I've been to thousands of football games in my life. You never feel any menace. Like, I was at the, I, just even to segue, for, I was at the Rome, Roma semi-final in 2018 uh, when Sean Cox was attacked. Um, and you don't think anything's going to happen. I was outside the Albert. I saw all the hooded Roma fans and thought, mm, this doesn't feel great. And I had a, a kid with me. I said, let's go into the ground. And as we walked up the side of the Albert, I, I think there might have been maybe a hundred cops running towards us with the batons. It had happened then. But you just, you just never, you go to the game to, to go to the game. You don't think something tragic is ever going to happen at a, at a football game. Well, I mean, you know, we, we thought after Heisel, after, after what happens in Birmingham, um, you know, at, at the Birmingham City Leeds game when a 15-year-old Ian Hambridge was killed, you know, after the, the Bradford fire, that we thought nothing like that has ever happened again in this country. We thought after the Bradford fire that they'd upgraded the grounds, that it was much, much safer. You know, people had learned the lesson of Heisel, people had learned the lesson of Bradford. And so we thought, I mean, the 80s, I mean, it was sometimes dangerous. You know, you go to places like Chelsea mm. or West Ham. And funnily enough, the worst was Tottenham. And there was an element of menace. The local boys would be out looking for you. Yeah. You know, and it actually, in some ways, enhanced the experience because you hardly ever, ever got involved in trouble. But, but by, by 1989, that was largely gone from the game as well. The second summer love had kicked in. You know, people had started taking ecstasy, were smoking weed at the match rather than drinking themselves senseless or, yeah. or taking speed. And it was, a very, it was the most mellow environment up to, in my football supporting career up to that point, you know, that season. There wasn't a lot of trouble. So you just thought, this will be fine. Yeah, and it's like... It is strange because it seems even watching the documentary, which is a lot of where the reference of this is coming from for me today. It all seems so peaceful, even in the the build up. You see the, you know, the Lepping Lepping's Lane end filling up. You, see, you know, and and by the way, there's twenty four thousand people being processed through that, and it looks like it's not even a hundred meters worth of space, mm. which is insane. Yeah. So I suppose you said you arrived into the ground just as the players are coming out, right? So. Mm. You were you were you up in a top? Were you in a tiered above it, or whereabouts were you in the ground? No, I was down the stands. Um, I was to the um, to the left of the Levens Lane. I was um, about. I was in, in row eighteen, just about well, probably five, two or three yards away from the um, online with the eighteen yard box. So, so I was in there, but. I mean, going back, we, we when we when we got to the ground, we um, I come down with me mate. who's also named Tony. It's like a Tony fest. Tony, Tony fest, yeah. And, and we we, you know, everyone says it was a like life threatening crush outside, and 
some people might have felt that, but it felt fairly okay to me. I mean, I was very experienced in crowds. We worked our way through, and we were right at the gate. And when the when when the gate suddenly opens, we've got our tickets ready, and we were just ready to go through the turnstiles. So we're suddenly there, and it opened, and I'm like, oh, right. So we went. He went in and went one way, and he against you know after after being in the car and you know and indulging in the discussion, don't go down the tunnel. He went down the tunnel. He saw the pitch and the green and couldn't help himself. I went round, walked round to the stand. So I was, so I, I was kind of, I was a bit shocked that uh, people had come in, you know, through the gates. Yeah. But I wasn't really, I wasn't really stunned. I hadn't seen anyone break the gates down. I was just like, what the hell's going on there? And I went round. So I, you know, I got to my seat, and you know, you still think you can see it's packed, but I still thought, well. You know, it's it's been packed before. This will be okay. Yeah, because even my dad talks about standing on the cop in the in the seventies and eighties and starting out in one part and not moving your legs and you're all of a sudden over the other side. And he said it was fun. It was just part of the experience. So I can understand yeah, yeah. that. But you talk about the gate opening and that's a big pivotal thing as well. That uh, of course the the officer in charge claims that they broke down the gate, but you can see on the CCTV footage that the gate is opened. Yeah, and, and you can see us all walking through. Yeah. We didn't judge yeah. through. You know, it wasn't like, yeah, we're in, we're in. Because we all had tickets. You just exactly. Like, oh, wow. And, like, and so, you know, it was, all, it was all very, very calm, notwithstanding that. You know, and even thinking, oh, those two sections are too full. It was still like, eh, you know, it's calm, it's good. And, you know, and the, and the game started and didn't, you know, sort of, your attention then goes back to the game. And... You know, at that point, I was expecting 19 minutes of football. We got six of them. Mm. Yeah, Beardsley hit the bar and then something went wrong is kind of the way it is, isn't it? Yeah, you, well, you, well, you could see um, after you hit the bar, and probably because, you know, it, it, it was up the other end. You know, it's the classic thing. People lean on the tiptoes and, mm. and you know, you, you fall forward. Mm. And... Although I think I, I think that had very little to do with it at that point because I think it was too far gone. Mm-hmm. But people started climbing out, and at first Grobbler tried to throw them back in, and then they, they, you know sort of, and then it, it sort of you realised to um, you know very quickly that things were bad, and people were on the pitch, and you could see them being injured. And the, the, the first thing that that, that really alerted me to have been so bad was there was a guy who walked out and he was holding his arm under his elbow so it should have been sort of the the you know the, the palm under the elbow mm-hmm. so the, the the arm makes a right angle yeah and it did except the uh be- the, the the bone between the um the elbow and the wrist was at another right angle the forearm was, yeah yeah that was that was broken at a right angle and it's like christ that's bad and then a couple of minutes later, there was there was a big guy, and he was wearing a red shirt, and he was he was just outside the eighteen yard box, and there was people working on him. I thought, oh god, he's had a heart attack. And then he pulled his shirt over his head, and it was like at that point I was like, Christ, there's people dead. And I said it aloud, and all the people around me, I think they were in a, they, they, you know, everyone's in a state of shock. We're going, no one's dead, no one's dead, and I'm like, he's dead, and they're getting very angry with me. Yeah. Like, no one's dead. And I'm like, at least one's dead. And you could tell there was more. So I, I'd, I'd done a CPR course in a job of that. And um, so I just, just pushed my way out. 
and come along the row and retrace my steps to, to the way I, you know, I, I come in. And um, so I ran around the back. And when I got around the back, there was a line of three stands and there's pictures of it. There's pictures yeah. of it. I mean, for years, people didn't believe me. I said, fucking pictures of it. You know, I'm frustrating over the years. And they were just standing in a line as if they were keeping people in the stadium. Mm-hmm. So they're standing in a line. So I looked at them and I run around and I thought, and there was, there was, there was a lot of people lying on the floor. And, they, you know, it looked like they were sunbathing. You know, it was a lovely day. And so I ran around, sort of stepped over a few of them. And then I got sort of to, to the middle point. And then it just struck me that these people were dead. They weren't sunbathing. And it was like, you know, mm. at that point, I kind of lost any, any like logic went out the window. I'd come round thinking if there were people injured because I'd seen them given CPR, then I'd be able to do it and I'd be able to, you know, if, they, if there was needed. And I just, I didn't know what to do. So I went up to one of these policemen and I said to him, how many? I don't know, it seems a daft question to ask, but how many? And he just, I mean, you know, like, but he, he sobbed. All yeah. he did was sob. And, you know, there, there is, a, a, we'll come back to South Yorkshire Police, I'm sure. Yeah. But there is a, a, there is a, a tendency to demonise them all and say they're all bastards. But, I mean, I can, you know, and I'm, and, and, and I've got to say, if I had known then what, what, what they'd done mm. and what had been done, I would have gone ballistic and, you know, and God, you know, and I <laughs> would have tried to lynch them, you know, sure. it's, yeah. if yeah. they wouldn't have known now. But at, at that point, I, I, I didn't know any of that. And I was just, I was just stunned. And like, and he was obviously overwhelmed as well, you know. Yeah. And, but at that point, I ran up the hill and as I've said before, I ran up to find a phone box to phone home and like, you know, and, um, and you know, as I've said this before, but it probably took me 15 years to stop running. Yeah, no, Tony, I mean, it's, I think that's the, I mean, the the reaction is is normal. We we say fight or flight in uh, you know in in basic human nature. And you said yourself, if you'd known what was going on with the South Yorkshire Police, you would have fought. But you did the the right thing, you know what I mean, and and, and chose flight. But I think it is important as well, like you said, like they're they're certainly demonised and rightly so. But there's a couple of guys that were on that BBC documentary, like one of the gentlemen who was a policeman, called out, you know, and said that he says, "Oh, I need to get over." It. How stupid it is that they have a spiked Spike. railing. First of all, and he jumps mm. in, tries to help some people. And obviously, it's so stupid now. We know that to have crash barriers and stuff. With you know, but then there's another. Uh, there's another gentleman who says that he was told not to write in his pocketbook what had gone on that day. Oh yeah, yeah. So straight away, as this is happening, the plan for the cover-up is already in place. That it was working within. Within within minutes, minutes, you know, when 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 Duckenfield told Graham Kelly that the gate had been forced, the cover up had started, and it continued, and you know, there's interesting. There's a lot of South Yorkshire policemen. You know, you talk about, and we will talk about. I'm sure Liverpool fans and 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 the the impact on them, the impact on the mental health yeah. of those who were there. Well. You've also got to look at the impact of the mental health of the 
South Yorkshire Police, and and I, I doubt they got much help either. And there was when I worked for the Times, when when um when I became deputy football editor there, and I started writing in the paper regularly. Everything I wrote, it didn't matter what it was about. Um, you know, the 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 day after it was in the paper, I get an email, an anonymous email from someone who called me a murderer and scouse bastard. You know what you did. You know you you, you lie about Hillsborough and all that. Every time, no matter where it is. And there was some mornings, you know what, I knew it was going to be there. And I'd come into work and you don't want to look at you. There was some mornings that really, really got to me, you know, one of them. And then there was one morning, I was like, and I knew it was coming. And I walked in and I sat down and it, it, an epiphany came. I had a realisation. I, I opened the email, saw it, and I knew what to do. So I, I, I replied and I said, it's taken me a long time to realise, but I now understand you're a South Yorkshire policeman and you're consumed with guilt. Wow. Don't worry. I forgive you. It wasn't your fault. I said, you weren't responsible. Yes, you didn't do the duties that you were, um, you, know, you know, that you believed you should do and you were, you were um, employed to do. I said, but really... It wasn't your fault. You were put in an, in an untenable situation and you were overwhelmed. Like, so I forgive you. You forgive yourself. And I sent it off and waited for the invective, the bile to come back. You know, I expected a, a, a hail of abuse. Never heard from him again. Now, he might have been a South Yorkshire policeman. I, he might have, the, the fella who hated me might have gone out that day and got hit by a bus. <laughs> and, well, I never heard from him again. And I think... You know, it's like, it wouldn't take Jim Rockford to, like, say, you know, <laughs> where, how, what, what it's happened there. Yeah. But, but, yeah, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of men in South Yorkshire and, and beyond. They were walking around suffering the guilt and trauma. And, yeah. you know, they're hurting as well. And, you know, and like, you might say you've got no sympathy for them. And it's hard to have sympathy for them. You know, one of them. But you've got to accept. They, they 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 have it and and maybe maybe if if we actually confront them and and maybe we're at least a little bit understanding maybe maybe they talk more about it and maybe we would have got to the where we should be quicker. Yeah. Oh. Uh, the, well, you can see there's two or three gentlemen who are who are police officers in that documentary I saw on BBC that are certainly seem to be stand up and seem to know what was what. But for, for anyone who's kind of uninitiated, I suppose, on the subject, David Duckenfield was the superintendent or whatever who was in charge, overseeing the whole thing. And Graham Kelly is the chief executive of the Football Association at the time. So after yeah. the crush happens and all this is going down, what Tony's just spoken about, people are dying. It's very evident what's happening. Uh, Graham Kelly visits the police box in Hillsborough Stadium and is told by the officer in charge, David Duckenfield, that Liverpool fans broke down a gate outside and swarmed the stadium, ticketless and drunk, and then were, mm. the, were at fault for killing their own fans or, or their fellow fans. That has been since proven to be a lie, but this is the lie that was perpetrated in 1989 and went forward until I think 2012 it was originally, officially determined yeah, that that was yeah. that was a lie but this this is this is what the whole thing is about for anybody who's listening who's who's not sure about the whole history that's where it all starts the first lie told about hillsborough was at, at probably 10 past three that day and then it's communicated to john motson in the bbc studio and I, I i heard it earlier on and it made me so angry that i actually started to cry 
and um, mm. he says, you know, oh, we've just been given what, and it's not John Motson's fault, he's just repeating what's been said, but we've just been told what the fault is here. Liverpool fans break down a gate, rush the stadium with no tickets, and, uh, and, and this has now happened and people will, will now die. Mm. Uh, I mean, like, and then that, that lie continued, I suppose, for however many, however many years. But maybe we should talk, Tony, about the whole thing I just mentioned about the drunk thing. That became a big, a big thing, the alcohol. They tried to blame yeah. that. Yeah, again, it made, it made it easy because it was Liverpool, because Liverpool has a historic reputation for drunkenness. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and some of it, there is some validity in it. I think what, what year was 1886 when like uh, uh, a quarter of arrests for, for drunkenness in the whole British Isles were made in, um, in, in, in the north end of Liverpool. You know, it was a ridiculous amount because they used to dump off the cheapest beer on the poorest people. Yeah. And um, so, you know, but then, again, it was always tied into that, you know, that, 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 that caricature of, you know, of Irishness and, and, and drunkenness, which is ridiculous. And it had long ceased to be, you know, a, a factor in, you know, anywhere else. And that's like, you know, I, I, I often talk to people and people, are, you know, sort of my age and older who went to matches and they say to me, you know, come on, we know what it was like. You know, uh, like I went to matches, there were always people drunk, there were always people, you know. And, and I was like, well, yeah, well, why didn't this happen every week then? You know, yeah. why didn't one of the matches you went to? Uh, yeah, and, you know, and I, well, I would have had what five pints, you know, yeah, possibly six. I mean, bear in mind, in those days we were drinking two point eight percent mild or three point two percent bitter, so it wasn't strong beer. But yeah, well, so what? Yeah, and you're entitled to have a few points. I mean, I go to the game. My dad now, I don't drink, but my dad has a beer, and it's something I enjoy. I go to the. I don't have a drink, but I go to the pub with my dad. My dad has a bottle or two or three or four, and then we yeah. head down to Anfield. I might want to go a little bit earlier than he does, but you know what I mean. We, it's still something you do because. But to one of the things that again stands out for me, and you have the families of the '96 talking about this, that before they were allowed to see the bodies or anything like that, the police were testing for blood alcohol levels, even down as far as kids kids who were killed they, they tested a 10 year old for alcohol and it, it was it was that already decided on a plan and incidentally that um that very few of those they tested were anywhere near you know the the, the drink driving level you know it's um it, it's they, they had to look for a new strategy immediately but they made the decision they must have all been drunk and yeah. tested them and they weren't um it, it's one of the great red herrings that people have, have leapt upon and you know it's um and it, it was no different to any other match you'd always see and even now when you get to a big football match you know occasionally you see someone who's gone too far and that's very incapable and struggle and the mates helping them but you know what i mean it's yeah. like it's it's so rare it's right. you know most people drink three four pints and are happy with it yeah, no, and as I say to you, like it still happens. You try and get into the Stanley or the Albert or any of the any of the pubs around Anfield. Everyone's having a drink because it's just what you do when you're out for it. And by the way, it happens at concerts. People, you know what I mean? I saw, I've been to concerts the last couple of months, and people are tossing points in the air. This is the new thing that they do. But like, it's just it's it seems to me anyway from the story that's come out now that from moment one this plan went into action this cover up. Uh, from Duck and Field saying that they came through the gate to Graham Kelly and then from the officers who were on the pitch being told not to log any of this in your pocketbooks that this will all be put on record later on. So uh, something else I'd like to touch on for, for people who are not familiar which is what we're you know, trying to tell the story here 
is the Sun newspaper. You mentioned Kelvin McKenzie earlier on. Can you maybe give us a brief kind of a thing about what that's all about for people who see Don't Buy the Sun? Like, well, why not? Like, I think a lot of people don't fully understand exactly what they did. Well, on, on the, the Wednesday after it, I mean, you know, we were, it, was, it was difficult because you, you don't expect to experience something like this. No, the city was in shock. You know, almost everyone knew someone who'd been connected with it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there was probably, what, 20, there was around 24,000 of us there, you know, sort of predominantly from Liverpool, you know, sort of, I would say, uh, you know, certainly in the high teens would be come, come from Liverpool. And so we all come back. We were on the state of shock. And, uh, and uh, it, it was on the Wednesday morning, the Sun newspaper dropped and the headline was the truth mm-hmm. and the truth was according to, to, to Kelvin McKenzie that we we stole from the dead that we urinated on dead bodies that we uh, we tried to attack the police and it was like it was just stunning because Liverpool fans have been the heroes of the day the police and the emergency services the ambulance service failed catastrophically for 44 ambulance and only one got into the pit, onto the pitch. You know, the failed fans ripped out the advertising hoardings and used them as makeshift shift stretches. You know, they were saving people's lives, and yet suddenly we were demonised for doing this. And and the shock was unbelievable. A shock wave went round, and a group of women from in Kirby just you know sort of without there was no planning, there was no organisation. They just spontaneously went to the shops and. And, you know, sort of took the sun out and destroyed it. And that's where the boycott started. There was never, any, there was no committees. No one sat around and said, let's boycott this. It was a spontaneous boycott. And that's what's always given us it its power and why it maintains its power. So the, 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 there was never any apology. The sun doubled down on us on a number of occasions. Other paper, papers said the same thing, but were softer on it and then backed off. Mm. But the sun... The, the the sun did the most outrageous thing in in, in journalism, journal, British journalism history, yeah. by labelling us uh, as you know as as people who would steal from the dead. I mean, people would come up to me for years and years. That was always difficult, and I, I think I, I said this on the you know the, the ESPN Hillsborough film. They say, "Come on, just admit it." And I always said to them, "Would you do it?" And they were like, "Well, no. Why the fuck would you think I would?" You know, and. What what the sun did was put things down, which are inconceivable. The classic propaganda, it's what you say about your enemy at times of war. And even then it isn't believable. You know, it's like and and but the sun did that to us and and it's unforgivable. And the boycotts will will you know, there's 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 the grandchildren and we're coming on to great grandchildren of people who started the boycott, maintaining it. And so, if you're in Liverpool and you got a copy of the Sun, expect to be expect to be told that it's unacceptable, um, and and it is. And I don't think anyone with any, frankly, I don't think anyone in the right mind should be reading the Sun. Yeah, no, I agree, and it's it's just unbelievable, and it's it's just like the kind of. The story does not up to me because of what happened with the 1981 Cup final that anyone was surprised that this happened or, or could sweep it, the truth under the table for so long. It's the same thing about the sun, how people could believe it because you can see from the pictures that day that the fans are pulling other fans up to the top tier of the stand. You can see pictures of Liverpool fans with the makeshift stretchers, you know, performing CPR. Mm. 
it, the evidence is before your eyes that that's not happening. But yes, you know, this was this was witnessed live by the biggest number of any people who've witnessed a crime because the cover-up was a crime witnessed you know in british history and not to mention the millions on television yet because of the demonization of the city and the football fans so many people were prepared to believe it and the, the, one one of the um after the hills were independent panel an editor at the um at the times emailed me and said i feel really i feel really sick he said i believed it he's like and Looking back, he said, "Like from this point, he goes, I can't, I can't understand how." He said, "All I can ask is for your forgiveness." Wow! Now, only one person said that to me. Most people just pretended that they always knew all along. But you know what? It's people bought into what the son said. They couldn't wait to 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 agree with it. And I think I think the people who did that need to have a deep look at themselves. And 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 again, always ask themselves the simple question: Would I do it? And if if you can't answer that yes, then you need to investigate more to find out whether the other people did. Yeah, no, that, I remember watching that Hillsborough film. Uh, I think it might have been 2013 or 14, and it just—I don't think I've ever been so affected by a documentary before. I had to pause it multiple times to get through it. And again, I told you I couldn't get through the BBC one today. It's too, it's too much. Um, but your your quote always, and we didn't know each other then, but it stood out. It stood out to me. Would you do it? Like it's a, you're a football fan. Those are football fans. Would you do it? No way. Why the fuck would you think I would? Then it just always it gave me chills at the time, and it still does because it's so true. Yeah, I, the, the number of times I've said that to people over the years, and you know, and, and I'd say, and I'd calm myself. And the the thing is, that when I met my wife, she'd take me to. Um, you know, we, we, I remember on one occasion we went to a, a party with her friends, and one of them said it to me. And you know what? I'm like, I, it, it took all my moral fibre not to butt him, mm. not to butt him, and just beat him the way he said it to me. And I went on that night, and I had like just awful nightmares. And over the years, I can't tell you how much moral strength it's taken me just not to launch myself at people when they've talked to me about Hillsborough and the talk they've talked to me as if Kelvin McKenzie was right, as if we were vermin, as I was vermin. And you know what? I've managed always managed to 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 retain my dignity. But looking back you know what? I wish I hadn't on a number of occasions. Yeah, I and, wish I hadn't. And I don't think many will blame you, Tony. Um, but look, obviously the truth will always come out. And it, it did, you know, which is which is great. Um, like Phil Scratton is interviewed on, on both documentaries, as you are as well, you know. And he's the one who, I suppose, who, who got access to those police files that were actually forged statements and stuff like that. Like, so this this... This isn't just a, a conspiracy theory about a football team. This is a, a proper state cover-up. Oh, and I'll tell you what, we haven't even seen, we're only scratching the surface yet. And because there are still ongoing court cases, I can't really talk about Yeah, it. well, no, we won't. Yeah, but just trust me on that. You really think that it's, it goes even deeper than we know? Well, what we'll see, because this won't affect it, is that when, these, when, when this thing happens, people couldn't have imagined the internet. Mm. So what we did is they wrote all the files up they, 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 they left uh, in, in, in all areas of life and they put them away in, in sort of rooms where, you know, sort of they had all, all the papers stored. 
and they thought that'll be that no one will ever go through them and all that in the age of the internet a lot of them ended up online and made life easy for researchers <laughs> yeah well look that is that is really good and i like we certainly won't be doing anything or talking about anything to uh to to purge or the trial or anything like that or or ourselves but um is it just one, I suppose, I don't really know, but I was asked to ask you, um, is it done for Duckenfield is, or is there more maybe to come for him? No, I think uh, we, we've reached the end with Duckenfield. Okay, that's unfortunate. but Yeah, it's, um, so he will never, he will never actually pay for it in, in the way that perhaps we wanted to. I mean, I've gone, I've gone way past the point of wanting to see him or anyone else in jail. I don't see where they do, but what I wanted was to see them, to see them showing up for what they are, to see them, that their lives have been, their lives of uh, where they were pillars of the community, where they were seen to be respected, were built on lies. And in a sense, that's been done. I mean, I don't know what Duffinfield's dreams are like. Mm. You know, if, if the he's he's got a responsibility for, for for debts. My dreams are bad enough, and I have no responsibility for anyone's debts. Um, I suspect his dreams are worse than mine. And if they are, well, that's enough of a punishment. Exactly, and everyone knows uh, exactly what he did now, and he has to live with the blood of. 96 and more people on his hands and I suppose maybe we should touch on that because everyone knows the number 96 it's written across the back of the Liverpool shirt it's chanted justice for the 96 you know it's it's all everyone knows the number 96 but there's been way more casualties to this Tony than than just the 96 who died on the day is that right well there there, there are yeah there are people like Andrew Devine who um was you know sort of made a paraplegic and is you know has lived a very difficult life ever since, and his family uh, are very private, so they don't—they very rarely go public. But there, there are people who received life-changing injuries, so there's lots of them. Never been totaled up, and then then there's the, the more the thousands and thousands of people who were affected mentally by it, and the. Um, Someone I know who's sort of close to one of the uh, families' organisations said to me, "It's it's you know when you say ninety six, the suicides of survivors are way beyond that. You know, sort of ninety six is only the beginning, and you know it's like I, I mean, and I mean I'd, I'd never heard the the phrase post." Uh, um, I, I've, I've forgotten um, post-traumatic stress disorder I'd never heard that phrase mm. and when I did finally hear it and you sort of it, it, it's only really become commonplace to read about it you know in the in the, well, the last 10-15 years and I could see in many ways you know sort of I was a poster boy for it you know it's like uh, you know the, the nightmares the flashbacks you know the uh, you know occasional irrational anger, you know the uh, and, and there's there's loads like me and we never thought about it. We just we uh, me mate who I mentioned earlier on Tony, he went into the went down the tunnel, and he he had a near miss, you know he he, he I mean I won't go into his stories but the 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 they're too horrible, but afterwards he 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 was. Well, a month or so afterwards, he started having diarrhea and losing loads of weight. And he's like, he's like one of those things where, he, you know, it just carried on so bad. He went to the doctor. He thought he had cancer. And uh, he was living in Walthamstow 
And the doctor, funnily enough, was an Irish doctor. He said, like, must have been an old man. He was probably about my age now. He was an old man. And he said to him, he said, well, he said, have you you had any, you know, have you had any traumatic incidents, you know, any trauma lately? Mate goes, nah, no, no, can't think of anything. So he goes, okay, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he's, so he goes back home to his, his, his girlfriends, you know, we were later married. And he goes, what's the doctor say? He's sending me for tests. You know, he's sending me for tests and all that. He said, oh, yeah, he asked me, you know, whether that's any traumatic incidents. You know, he says, she goes, yeah, and what do you say? And I said, no. She goes, get right back. Yeah. So she sent him back. And the doctor goes, oh, okay. Right. And he cancelled the, the tests. He said, he said, have you cried? And he said, no. He said, he said well, here's what's happening. He said, your body's weeping through your ass. <laughs> he, said, he said, you want to, you want to, what you want to do is let it weep through the eyes. He said, what you've gone through is a terrible thing. And as I say, this was, you know, a month, two months after it, we made who who nearly died in there. was talking about, nah, it didn't happen to me. And we all walked around for years going, nah, you know, I was there. I, I, I spoke to Anne Williams. Anne Williams, her 15-year-old Kevin was killed there. And he asked for his mum an hour after the authorities said he was dead. Not quite an hour, 45 minutes. But um, Anne Williams became one of the four, forefront, foremost faces of the campaign. And she, she, she died of cancer. Uh, you know, it's, it's before she saw yeah. you know, a, lot, a lot of this and really sad. I was speaking to Anne Williams and I was on the phone to her and she said to me, it's you I feel sorry for. And I said, oh, don't be daft. And she went, no, what you saw. She said, I never saw it. I lo-. She said, I lost a child. She said, and that's terrible. She said, but what you saw. She said, you saw lots of people's children dying. You saw. And I was like, and up to that point, I'd never, I, I always hated using the word survivor. I wasn't a survivor. I wasn't in the pens. Mm. You know, all I was was there. No, I saw it, and no, no, I wasn't a survivor. And after that, I kind of reassessed it, and I thought, and I looked back at my life, I looked at the irrational decisions I made, I looked at my behaviour, I looked at the, the, the things I've done, which now you look back and see compre- incomprehensible, and you go, well, maybe I am a survivor, maybe I have survived it. Mm-hmm. And then on other days, you know, you wake up after, a, and, and I've been lucky the nightmares have eased considerably, since the um since the inquests and you know it's like those around me say to me that i've been better yeah. <laughs> and it's um and I, you know it's like um the, it, it, but you you kind of we didn't realize we didn't realize that this was eating away at our psyches was eating away at our side and uh, us inside and we've all walked around with this and when people committed suicide or died or we heard they drank themselves to death we didn't think oh you know it's to tell us we have anything to do with that you just go oh you know what should give up the ale oh how did, yeah. why did you kill himself to forget you know but this has done it to us i was we've talked about um i've been i wrote a book about istanbul but it wasn't really about istanbul it's about everything it's about it's about being a Liverpool fan, the, the culture of football, and it addresses Hillsborough and, and Heisel and, and that like, and we're talking about it because it's sold quite a few during while while this is you know, yeah. it, there's been no football, and my wife said to me, we 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 were actually arguing, discussing uh, whether when when people write books whether 
if you as a reader go, ah, this means this in it. And, you know, and they tell the writer and the writer goes, no, it doesn't. You know, and you say, but, you know, she said, the writer can reveal some of themselves. So I realised, no, no, he can't. And she said to me, well, when you wrote that, did you realise how, like, it's like a, a manual for post-traumatic stress disorder? Wow. And I was like, okay. Okay, checkmate. <laughs> Games that match. But, no, I, I kind of, if, if you know, I, I, you, you, until you come to understand that it's affected your mental health, then you won't think you've got a problem. Mm. And I would say the vast majority of ourselves, of us, and I've talked to, you know, sort of mates of mine who are, you know, we're, we're in the pens and we're, we're, we're real survivors. And they, they were offered no help. They were offered no psychological counsel. None of us got anything. All we got, we got told that we were animals, that we were scum, that we robbed from the dead. And that just made it all worse. We walked around with survivor's guilt, the accusation, the accusations. And that's before you even get to what we saw. And I think one of the great scandals of it, and you might say it's only a function of the time, and, and you know, it probably wouldn't happen now, is that we, we didn't get any help. In fact, we got the opposite of help. Yeah. People made it worse for us in wherever we went. I was working in California. I was, well, I was working in a house, like um, doing some some building stuff there. And woman, you know, nice middle class person. This was 1990. Goes to me, oh, yeah, I love your accent. Where you're from, Liverpool? She goes, oh, that's where you crush each other to death, isn't it? Oh my God! And like it went across the world, and for years and years, it's like. So you don't even know you've got issues, or at least you're hiding from them. You're not educated enough to know, and then people are just making them worse. And I'm not just the only one. There's there's thousands and thousands and thousands of us who've walked around, and you know what? You look back, and no wonder some of them took their lives. No wonder some of them took to drink and drugs. I mean, I'm surprised... I mean, I'm sure one day someone will collate it all. Sure. I think the figures will be horrifying. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, just when you bring up the book, um, how can people get it? Because it's on its way to me at the moment. I'm looking forward to it. But how can someone get it? Because I'm sure there'll be plenty of people looking to read it. Oh, it's on. It's, it, it, it's the, the links in my bio and Twitter. Um, I tried to make it as I mean I wrote this in 2005 and this was a reprint from it's, called, it, it, it's called Far Foreign Land right Far Foreign Land which is a line from a Liverpool song um, oh, what else goes or Tommy yeah they sent him off to a far foreign land and and it's about well you know what would you say what's about it's about foreign lands I mean essentially it's about a journey to Istanbul but it's about a reflection on life um, and football take life as a football fan and football culture and it took me to a number of foreign lands and places that I didn't want to go to mm. places that I wish I hadn't been Heisel Hillsborough mm-hmm. and and I think so yeah get on the, the Twitter bio try to keep the prices down on it um, so uh, hopefully people will get something out of it and also see I tried to be honest and write about the bad sides of football culture as well because there are some bad sides sure. you know what you know, our lot weren't angels. You know, we weren't we weren't the barbarians that we were set, but you know, some of our boys were 
yeah. were characters. And, um, you know, they, we certainly, when, when I was writing it, the, uh, the publisher got the manuscript and said to me, this, this part here, you seem to be saying that Liverpool fans stole a lot when they went, they went to Europe. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. She said, but you seem to be putting forth a moral justification for it. And I'm like, yeah, and. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, um, I, I, I tried to do it warts and all. And maybe, and maybe that's what uh, you know. So, I mean, wife Lisa was talking about when she was saying that there's the attract. I said, whenever I've talked about these things, whenever I've written about these things, I made a decision. In it would have been uh, 16 years ago when when I be, when I got in a position at the Times uh, that I, whenever I wrote or spoke about them, I would tell the truth. Mm. As far as I saw it, warts and all, even if it reflected badly on me. And and I've tried to do that because what I figured you've got to, under, to understand Hillsborough and to understand Heisel, you've got to understand that you've got to understand the truth of it, even if the truth is, unpal- is, is unpalatable. Yeah. And um, so I've tried to be as honest as possible. I mean, uh, and as I say, I, I often get... Um, I, you know, so it's over the years I've done a lot of interviews. You know, you you, you mm. uh, talk to two of them about Hillsborough, mm. and uh, and they they've taken their own toll. I mean, the, the day of the um, the independent panel, I think I did I did twenty different interviews, and at the end of the night, I was I was I was, I was seriously I could have done with I could have done with some help. I could have done with some yeah. Um All that all I did was have two beers and go to crack, go and cry myself to sleep. Yeah. Um, the, but I've done a lot of these things, but I've always said to them, ask me any question you like, just ask me any question and I'll answer it as best I can. Yeah. So that's what I try to do. And the, well, did you, did you ever go and do any help, Tony, any counselling or anything like that about it? No, no. And that's, I wish I had. And I'm, I'm, I'm for, for many years, my wife urged me to do it. But stupid, Never too late. Never too late. Yeah, I know. I, well, I'm... In some ways, because the nightmares and flashbacks have stopped, I'm less concerned about it than I've ever been. But you're probably right. You're probably and and like and yeah, it's never too late. It's never too late. It's never too late. How can people find you on Twitter, Tony? Because I love people to try and get that book. What yeah, is it? Um, at, at... Tony Evans, at, at Tony Evans ninety two A. Okay. At, um, which is the, the, the address that I also was born in, 92A Burlington Street. I've always wondered. I always wondered. So I'm glad you thought me. Um, yeah. no, look, I definitely think it's never too late, even if, you know, even if the, you feel like the worst is over. I think it's never too late to, to, to talk. Well, you know? well yeah, I, I think you're right because the worst mightn't be, might be back. It might not have gone away. And that's the thing. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I'll, yeah, I think I will. Once this lockdown's over, I think yeah. that's the, a very good idea. I think you know, I've I, I I always put down any kind of change in my life or any. I suppose the person I am now is because of any therapies that I've done, and I don't hide that at all on the podcast. You know what I mean? And I, I would always, mm-hmm. no matter how big or small the problem, I think talking about it is the way to the way to go. And I mean talking to a professional. I don't mean talking to me on a podcast or anything like that. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's, you know, I, I think, I think it, it's definitely, I mean, I, I, well, that's the thing. You, you urge other people to do it. And sometimes you, you don't follow out your own. You know, sort of, and, and I think uh, over the years of, I've, I've done that, you know, we've, we've talked about it. It's, it's interesting that, you know, the, the, 
some of the survivors are, are raising money to to pay for people who've never talked to anyone to, to see them and i think that's that's really important i mean one of the things that the hillsborough shop um which was it was run by a, a lovely man called jerry mciver who, yeah. who died and um you know and, and doesn't get the credit he deserves he's he's one of the heroes of, of hillsborough and an evertonian he was as well and you know because because they they deserve ever lots of evertonians deserve a really big nod to the yeah. support and help they've given but you know you go you go to the hillsborough shop and that was for for a lot of people it was as near to therapy as they got because there was people in there to listen to them and mm. those you know to tell them that they weren't alone and and i think it, it's it's I, I think when we we come to reassess what happens we'll realize as i said before more of us should have gone and, and looked for help you know and um of course you know these days the people haven't people haven't got the money to Get the healthy needs and agreed, agreed. But as I said to you, Tony, it is never too late. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, uh, you know that's. I think that's the they, message. They are wise words, and I will take them on board definitely. I love that. I love that. Um, thank you very much. Now, I suppose. Look, I really appreciate you coming and doing this. Maybe we should maybe finish on a little lighter note and talk about modern day football for a minute. It's coming back. They're talking about. What's your views on this? Well, I think I think of that too. Um, part of me thought the you know the. Um, you know, it's come back a bit too quick. But then the other side of me goes, we've got to try and get to normalisation. Yeah. I mean, I just fear that the the, the catastrophic job that the, the British government has done will mean things will get worse again. And, that, you know, I fear that, you know, I mean, you compare it to the way Ireland has handled things, you know, God, uh, you know, it's uh, all four adults in, you know, in governments. That'd be nice. Well, but it, it will come back. And I think... It, it's positive and, it's good. and part of me thinks as well if they played after Hillsborough mm. then you can't exactly argue with them coming back now I mean because my view is that the Liverpool should, should have just stopped playing that season yeah. you know and so, but I see that in the interest of fairness and all that they had to do it so, so I, I'm coming back I, I do have some qualms about it I, you know uh, but I think it will have more positives than negatives. And, of course, Liverpool win the league, although that's not why it's coming back. There's opposing fans are like, oh, it's only coming back so Liverpool can win the league. Well, actually, the league was already won. It's yeah. a sort of all you losers who are 25 <laughs> points behind. You can get in the Champions League, who stays up. That's what it's all about. We do the happy to end the season then, give them the trophy, because you know, yeah. it's won. So, so it kind of, it's, it's, it's not for Liverpool, although, you know, it'll be, it'll, be, it'll be nice to see, you know, see football again. It'll be nice to get semblance of normality. And, uh, I mean, football is still the biggest expression of working class culture in, on these islands. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I think... Um, I think people will be glad to, to uh, and I say that as someone who played Gaelic football when I was younger. But, um, and, uh, but it's still the biggest expression of the culture, and I think it, it's, it's valuable to people. And a lot of people who, because again, after this pandemic, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to need to seek help. Yeah. Because, they, I mean, this is the, the whole, lots of people have been traumatized by it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, so, and one of the things that might, help people stay to mind is the silly little game that we've all come to love and you know when you think about it 22 fellas chasing a ball around the pitch 
Yeah. It's a bit daft, really. You know what? It is. It but, is. And I tried to explain to someone very recently, just this week, why, I mean, you're looking at the Liverpool room. No one else can see it, but I'm in the Liverpool room in my house right now. It's and great, by so the way. I, I thank you. I tell my dad that. But, like, to try and explain it, I can't actually explain it. But I think beyond, look, as you said yourself, Liverpool have the league wrapped up since December, I think. But... It's it's a semblance of normality and it's a distraction and it's a much needed distraction, I think, that everyone can agree that we need right now as well, Tony. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? There will be people who will be who take solace in the game. Yeah. And it's uh, and w- although they might be apart, the, the greatest thing about football is it brings people together. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I didn't... I, I joke about it and I say sometimes, I watch it now professionally, so I watch it sober these days. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, which, you know, and I go, it's, it's crap sober. It's great when you've got a few bevies and all your mates around you and it's like a party. But that's what football does. It brings people together and it gives them, it gives a sense of community, a sense of shared belief, a sense of shared purpose, which sometimes we don't have. And football brings that. So that can only be a good thing. It's, um, you know, they, they, so I think that's why it's important it comes back. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Liverpool fan or whether you support Man United. It's all the same. You know, we, we all have similar sort of um, sim, sim, similar football and cultures. And the, the sooner they can be normalised, the better. So in that sense, I'm, I'm really pleased it's coming back. Well, Tony, I can't think of a better note to end on than that. I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you so much for coming on. It was brilliant. I could, I could sit here talking to you all night. I really could. But thank you so much for coming on, Tony. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, it's a pleasure. And you know me. I could talk all night. Fact. That's a fact. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.